from the studios of Farm Journal Broadcast. This is U.S. Farm Report. Welcome to U.S. Farm Report this weekend. I'm Time Morgan, and here's what's in store over the next 60 minutes. A cyber attack on meat. And it's not just in the U.S., it's a global phenomenon. As the world's largest meat processor recovers from a cyber attack, is more of the food chain at risk? Higher input costs and possible tax changes are weighing heavily on farmers. Roughly two-thirds of the farmers in our survey said they expect to see cash rental rates rise next year. The latest gauge of farmer sentiments takes a sharp drop. And in John's world... The sparkle may be off diamonds. Now for the news, a cyber attack on the world's largest meat producer, JBS USA, forced to halt production in Australia and in portions of North America this week. Bloomberg reporting a notorious hacking group linked to Russia called Revel, or Sodanowski B, is behind this attack in the U.S. Processing at the company's five largest U.S. beef plants as a result was shut down on Tuesday. But by midweek, JBS said it had already made, quote, significant progress in resolving the cyber attack, end quote, with the company's CEO saying its systems were coming back online. And JBS employees, will they return to work? Even though the shutdown was short, it still had an impact on the entire beef complex. Our calculations is it looks like it backed up about 40 to 42,000 head of cattle. So important, if you will, Clint, but not, not devastating. We are already lacking slaughter capacity in the beef industry, some of that due to labor. And then if you back things up because of this cyber thre- threat, it really makes problems going forward. And so we have a lot of heavyweight cattle we need to move through. You know, backing up 40,000 cattle is not a big deal today, but expanding the kills has been a real problem for packers especially with beef prices this high. So, you know, the packers are trying to work through the inventory, but we believe it'll take longer than many think, probably to the middle or end of summer. And we're going to discuss the issue much more coming up in the second hour in our Farm Journal report. Well, the head of Tyson Foods is stepping down and moving on after less than a year on the job. Tyson Foods announcing President and CEO Dean Banks is leaving the company for personal reasons. Banks was named as CEO in August, but officially took over the position in October. The company saying Donnie King will succeed Banks, effective immediately. Well, USDA updating crop progress after the Memorial Day holiday with the first look at corn crop conditions. Well, USDA says corn planting is now 95% complete across the top 18 states. That's eight points ahead of the five-year average. Kansas is the farthest behind with 83% planted. That's followed by Missouri, Kentucky, and Ohio at 92%. Now, USDA also releasing crop condition ratings for the first time, saying that the corn crop is 76% good to excellent. That's slightly better than a year ago. Soybeans are now 84% planted, 17 points ahead of average. Missouri really struggling with less than half of the crop in the ground. Meanwhile, nearly 80% of the winter wheat crop has headed. And in states where harvest is set to begin, Texas, Oklahoma, and Kansas have 95% or more of the crop at that stage. And about half of the winter wheat crop is called good to excellent, a point better than last week. Well, a new ag economy barometer from Purdue University and the CME group reflects a decline of 20 points as certain items are weighing heavily on producers. The barometer now sets at 158. That's the lowest reading since September of last year. Both the index of current conditions and the index of future expectations declined in May. 
Producers surveyed are less optimistic about their farm's financial performance last month than they were a month earlier. Farmers were also asked about their expectations for cash rental rates for next year. Roughly two-thirds of the farmers in our survey said they expect to see cash rental rates rise next year. Among those farmers that said they expect rates to rise, 39% said they expect rates to rise by 5 to as much as 10%, and 43% said they ex actually expect rates to rise by 10% or more. But overall, Mintert says possible changes to taxes as well as higher input costs are really weighing on farmers, and farmers' expectations for good versus bad times in U.S. ag have also undergone a shift. In May, just 27% of producers asked said they expect a good times in U.S. ag over the next five years. That's the lowest reading in the survey's history and down 12 points from just a month prior. And a driver of the shift appears to be a large divergence in expectations for the crop versus the livestock sectors. Well, low interest rates and improved commodity prices, those are helping driving up the price of farmland. According to Farmers National Company of Omaha, farmland sales prices are up anywhere from 5 to 15 percent in the past six months. And most of the increase happening this year. Farmers and investors are bidding hard, pushing the market higher. Farmers National Company says prices for good quality cropland are approaching levels last seen in 2014. Well, USDA is forecasting a record farm exports for the fiscal year 2021. The agency expecting $164 billion in exports for 2021. That would be the highest on record and up 21% from last year's total. The previous record, well, that was set in 2014. USDA says the drivers behind the surge include a record outlook for China, expected to be the number one customer, buying some $35 billion in exports alone. Now, sharply higher commodity prices and reduced foreign competition, those are also driving that increase. All right, that's it for the news. Well, from record cold temperatures to record heat, Mother Nature bringing that heat this week. We'll have your forecast next. U.S. Farm Report is brought to you by Bayer Plus Rewards, helping make every part of your season more rewarding. Visit mybayerplus.com to learn more. Meteorologist Mike Hoffman joins us with weather. Mike, talk about a heat wave, record-breaking heat in some areas. I mean, is that a hint of what's to come this summer? Good morning to you, Tyne. Well, not necessarily. Now, the areas that are have been really dry and still are really dry are probably going to be the hottest areas. But areas that are wet, well, those areas may actually be cooler than normal for a while here. We'll show you that in the 30-day outlook coming up. In the meantime, uh, the root zone shows those wet areas. It's been Arkansas and northern Louisiana all along for months and months. Western Great Lakes as well. There's still some wet areas there. But uh, this wet area has expanded westward over the past two weeks. Look at that. Eastern Colorado, eastern New Mexico actually has some wet areas for a change. And it's expanded a little bit uh, across the Ohio and Tennessee River Valleys. Still very dry, but it's not as dry. Uh, North Dakota, parts of South Dakota, Minnesota on the root zone, and still very dry in places northeast and southeast. So of course, the west has been dry all along. Now, the drought monitor, it's actually improved a little bit. Northern Rockies into the northwest. Still very dry in the long-term drought for North Dakota and surrounding areas. But uh, you can see we're kind of pushing that drought back in the Western Plains. I wasn't sure that was going to happen this year, but it's good that it is. We still have some uh, increasing dry areas, though. 
uh, over the uh, Carolinas, as you can see, in parts of the Northeast, parts of the Great Lakes as well. Here's the jet stream. Uh, you can see we still have a trough out west. Ridge has built up into the Great Lakes in much of the southeast where the heat is located. We're going to get some golf moisture into this whole system as well. So there's going to be widespread showers and thunderstorms, mainly afternoon variety. So they'll be hit and miss. Trough starts to develop in the west as we head into Wednesday. That piece of energy then comes on over the top of things, and it looks like we try to cool things down a little bit next weekend for the Great Lakes and parts of the Northeast. Heat may be building back up. So things may be in motion as we head through the end of the week, bringing some cool air to places. So let's go uh, day by day on Monday. Again, this is mainly afternoon variety showers and storms. There are going to be some pockets mainly Texas on up into the Central Plains where there could even be some rain at night. But uh, this is mainly an, a summer-like weather pattern here with the fronts through the northern tier of states. Still the case on Wednesday. Most of this area not going to get rain, but some of it's going to get an afternoon shower and storm. Still the case for the Tennessee Valley southward on Friday, but we have some systems moving through the Great Lakes in the northeast and the Northern Plains as we head through Friday. So here's my 30-day outlook for temperatures above normal northeast mid-Atlantic, Great Lakes, most of the west, below normal then from southern Kansas through most of Texas and Louisiana. As far as precipitation over the next 30 days, going to keep it above normal like we've had for eastern New Mexico all the way to the uh, Atlantic coast, below normal south Florida, and northern plains, unfortunately, through the west, below normal precipitation expected. Time? Well, despite the weather extremes, USDA saying the corn crop is off to one of its best starts in history. We'll get the take of Arlen Sunderman and Matt Bennett in our marketing roundtables next. U.S. Farm Report is brought to you by Delaro Complete. Keep your operation moving forward with new Delaro Complete fungicide from Bayer. Well, welcome back to U.S. Farm Report this weekend. Matt Bennett, Arlen Suderman joining us. Well, as we mentioned in the news, USDA debuting crop conditions for corn this week, a 76% good to excellent. Arlen, that's pretty darn good considering we're having areas that are too wet, areas that are too dry, and then frost and freeze that, that really blasted the northern corn belt this past week. Yeah, and it's simply going to raise concerns among farmers once again about the crop rating system. I, I'm still a believer in the crop rating system. I think it's the envy of the world. Are there problems with it? Yes, um, but it's going to raise those concerns. But but the bottom line is it really doesn't matter in the 1st of June. The correlation between crop ratings and final yield is very weak at this time of year. Would we rather have good rated crops at this time of year versus bad rated crops? Absolutely, we would. But bottom line is July makes a corn crop, August makes a soybean crop is, is the general thinking. And uh, we've got a long ways to go ahead of us for this crop to play out. Matt, so, so when do crop condition ratings matter to the market and have an impact? You know, I think one of the things that's going to matter is what's the trend going to be, you know, from this point forward. Are we going to see uh, ratings get better? Are we going to see them get worse? I, I was not surprised with ratings being good. We had a dry spring. Most people had a pretty darn good stand. Yes, we had cold temperatures, but uh, most of us uh, would prefer a dry spring any day of the week over some of the springs we've had here recently. So uh, I do think that uh, that uh, condition rating is probably warranted here to start. 
but again, it's going to be what's the trend going to be moving forward? And my assumption would be with some of the heat and uh, the issues that we've had, uh, obviously, uh, on the complete flip side of that with some of the freeze situations, uh, there's probably going to be a little bit of an adjustment uh, moving forward. And it could be a big adjustment, not this Monday, but the following Monday, you know, if we continue to see some of the heat that these forecasts are pushing in uh, currently. Yeah, some really extreme heat. And talking about heat and drought, I mean, when you look at Brazil, I know, Arlen, you've talked about that for quite some time, mm -hmm. but now we're really seeing those impacts, impacts on shipping and things. Do we have a good grasp of how big or how small the South American crop really is? I don't, I don't think the trade really does yet at this point. Our producer survey that we conducted uh, around the 1st of June lowered its total corn production estimate to 89.7 million metric tons down from 100.25 million metric tons the previous month. USDA is still at 102 million metric tons. Now think about that's about 800 million bushels if verified that the USDA has to account for somewhere in its global balance sheet. Uh, it's not gonna do that all at once in this next report. It's gonna take time, um, but that means either increased wheat feeding, decreased corn feeding, uh, or increased dependence on U.S. exports and probably a combination of those in the months ahead. And so that's something that's going to have a dramatic impact on the global balance sheet going forward in the months ahead, even as we watch what's happening here with the Midwest growing season. Yeah, well, speaking of that balance sheet, I mean, Matt, we have the next WASDE report coming out at the end of, of next week. So do you expect USDA to make any of those changes next week in that report? That's a great question. I don't expect any large scale changes, especially uh, June as June reports go. This is not the big one. I, I kind of feel like uh, some of the changes that I feel need to be made, uh, they might kind of wait around and see what this acreage looks like. And I hate to say it like that. It just kind of feels like that's what we're going to see. Now, I would expect maybe a slight uh, increase in ethanol, uh, corn usage for ethanol. I'd, I'd expect maybe a little bit of an increase, 25 million bushels or better as far as corn exports. And I think they those are well warranted. As far as new crop, I think that's where I get a little more, more interested. What are they going to do You know, with these big Chinese purchases? There's no question that the USDA looks a little light on their new crop exports. So uh, are they going to make an adjustment there? That remains to be seen. I'm like Arlen. It's going to be very interesting to see how they address you know, this uh, Brazilian crop and world corn supplies because uh, uh, there's no doubt that there needs to be some adjustments made. I just don't think they're going to make anything uh, major all in one report. They, you know, they tend to uh, kind of step into these things one, one piece at a time. Arlen, what changes do you think that USDA needs to make? Well, the, the reduction in Brazil's production estimate, although I don't expect them to go as low as what we are, but certainly down in the mid to upper 90s in this next report, lower in future reports. Exports need to go up. I agree with Matt on that, but I think they need to go up a lot more. They need to average about 50 million bushels per week the rest of the marketing year to hit USDA's current target. And we've been averaging 25 million bushels above that level over the last three months. So they could make a significant increase in exports. I don't think they will, but I think they should. Well, the inflation conversation, it is heating up again. What impact could it have on ag commodities in the months ahead? We'll talk about that later on U.S. Farm Report. A shift in production, and it's not just hitting foods. Here's John Phipps. Recently, the world's biggest jewelry retailer, Pandora, announced it would switch from mined diamonds to lab-produced. 
Like many press releases, though, the reality of this change is somewhat less than at first glance. To begin with, Pandora makes over 85,000 types of jewelry, and the switch applies to new designs going forward. So a tiny but growing portion of their sales will gradually switch to fake diamonds. Only those gems are hard to call fake. Gemologists cannot distinguish between mined and artificial. Diamonds is diamonds, so to speak. The ability to produce industrial-grade diamonds has existed for decades, but recent improvements in the process have speeded and cheapened the manufacturing. The manufacturing cost is now down about 10% of mining and likely to drop further. The diamond industry has been essentially run by a monopoly enjoyed by global giant De Beers, which dismissed the news with confident remarks about how people would not settle for anything but real. Keep in mind, these are the folks that likely started the whole an engagement ring should cost three months salary scam. This whole racket has amused me for years. Diamonds are not particularly rare, but often just kind of hard to get to, and the only reason they have high value is because we've been taught they do. Cheap and indistinguishable lab-grown diamonds could prompt both blatant cheating, if it is cheating, with enormous profits, drastic price erosion, or collapse, or most likely both. Now this sounds familiar to ag. Organic products have standards of production, but no test for chemical purity, for example. Something is organic because there's an organic label, not because it is chemically proven to be significantly different. Ditto with ge genetically modified materials. While tests do exist for those in use, they are identical. GM corn tastes and cooks like non-GM. Proponents of both are selling something like the beers, a feeling about the product, not a demonstrable difference. In the case of diamonds, I don't see how unlabeled substitution won't happen. Taking a seller's word was credulous before the great trust evaporation of the last decade. Today it seems simply gullible. Nobody's health will be harmed by such inevitable diamond duplicity. In fact, diamond mining is a nasty and dangerous business, not to mention energy intensive. I have no problem with folks being choosy about foods for legitimate or fear reasons or unfounded fears. But paying more for mine diamonds is like asking to have your pocket picked. Thanks, John. Well, we need to take a quick break in the machinery repeat. He's with us this weekend for Tractor Tales. Hey folks, a really special Tractor Tales for you this week. We're gonna check out the oldest known existing John Deere D. It was the fourth one built, and it's owned by the Reed family from Shawnee, Kansas. Okay folks, it's time to learn about the oldest known John Deere D tractor. And I'm here with Justin Reed. Justin, you're from Shawnee, Kansas? Yes. And this is your father, Kenny? Yes, this is my, my dad's tractor. A friend of, good friend of his had uh, told him about this and convinced him that he needed to go bid on it. Correct me if I'm wrong, Justin, the story is the first two Ds were kind of scrapped in production? Yes, according to the, the notes in archive, the uh, serial number you know, ending in one and serial number ending in two okay. were, were both scrapped due to casting issues. Uh, okay. Number three is unknown, and, and this is uh, number four, this is built. Uh, yes. Almost 100 years old now. Exactly, it, it so will be soon. When this thing was built, I understand it headed up into North Dakota? Yes, uh, so these went to Minot, a lot of them uh, were shipped to Minot, North Dakota. Uh, the 23D was hand-built 
and uh, there were 50 of them built. Uh, the first 50 have a lot of unique features, uh, what we call the ladder radiator with the slots in the sides of the radiator. Hand-built front axle, it's not a casting like the later ones. So now here again, the oldest known D to exist. What do people, kind of you guys have owned this, what do people say when they see it or get up close to it, this piece of John Deere history? Um, they're just fascinated that it's still here with us, you know, that it's survived this many years and, and is very well intact. Up next, did the cyber attack this week give us a hint of the cost of moving to more automation in the food system? That's our Farm Journal Report next. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report. Trusted, timely, tradition. Welcome back. Well, the cyber attack on JBS brought meat processing to a halt this week in more than just the U.S. But as automation becomes more of a theme in producing food, is that just the risk we take in having an efficient food chain? That's this week's Farm Journal Report. Not even a month after a cyber attack shut down the colonial pipeline in the U.S., another attack hit this week and one that had a direct hit on agriculture. They've just gotten bigger and bolder. JBS, the world's largest meat producer, was the latest victim of a cyber attack and one that crippled JBS's packing plants across Australia and North America. And it's not just in the U.S., it's a global phenomenon. As JBS plants started opening back up in days, the impact already sent ripples through the industry. We've had labor challenges for months now. Now you have an IT challenge. Again, I don't know how long it's going to last, but anything that keeps certain plants offline will make that particular challenge worse. Tuesday's USDA cattle slaughter numbers showing the U.S. processed 27,000 head fewer cattle than those plants did the week prior. And the total impact this week looks to be larger. Our calculations is it looks like it backed up about 40 to 42,000 head of cattle. So important, if you will, Clint, but not, not devastating. As the majority of JBS packing plant locations were back online in days, the overall blow to U.S. packing capacity wasn't as severe as if the situation would have lingered for weeks. If it stays at that level, nothing, you know, no other shoe to fall here, then the impact is relatively minimal, uh, not for the company necessarily. I'm sure they're scrambling a lot. Some of their customers, both on the procurement side as well as on the sales side, uh, are no doubt being impacted by flows of product, but in terms of a broader, you know, sort of a disruption in overall supplies of beef and, and certainly anything that consumers would see, I don't think this will, will have that kind of impact, if, again, if it stays at this level. While the impact seemed to be minimal this week, it's adding to the bigger issue packers already face. The timing is very unfortunate because we've been struggling with capacity issues and trying to move enough cattle through to sort of get feedlots caught up and cleaned up and more current. And so this aggravates that a little bit. We have a lot of heavyweight cattle we need to move through. You know, backing up 40,000 cattle is not a big deal today, but expanding the kills has been a real problem for packers especially with beef prices this high. So, you know, the packers are trying to work through the inventory, but we believe it'll take longer than many think, probably to the middle or end of summer. Well, we have a lot of cattle trying to get into a very occupied sector of the industry. It doesn't take much of a hiccup to create a market impact. Conversely, if we're at a point like we were, say, in 2014, where we actually had more shackle space relative to cattle, 
then an event like this would not have the same impact on fed cattle prices. Tonzer says bringing more processing plants back online isn't the only answer and isn't a quick fix. We can't just look at one news event, label one a black swan event and move on. It's a function of a lot of other things. Uh, simply adding more plants, which is talked about, would ease some of that challenge. But that's not free, and we all need to remember why that hasn't been you know, done already. There are expensive investments. The worldwide cyber attack also catching the attention of the White House this week. Obviously, ransomware attacks, we've seen them increase uh, over a period of time. It's an increasing threat to the private sector and to our critical infrastructure. And there are other countries, many of whom we will see when the president is in Europe, who have similar concerns. So we expect this to be an issue of discussion. The White House said on Tuesday that Brazil's JBS informed the U.S. government that the ransomware attack against the company originated from a criminal organization likely based in Russia, a theory confirmed in the press briefing this week. But as cyber attacks seem to become more common, more of the food chain may be at risk. Everything in our society hinges on electricity and IT systems. How good can our firewalls be? What do we have to do are the key questions for corporations going forward. Uh, but I do think that this is a shot across the bow of agriculture. I think we have to be attentive to it. I would say that automation is going to be good for processing margins and for agriculture in general, but it does expose us to some, some different types of risks. That's as relying more on automation and less on manual labor could come at a cost. So what's an IT risk relative to labor access risk? What's a modern facility driven by IT risk versus an old facility that might be more manual, you know, maybe has a more fire risk with it because it's an older facility. So there's a lot of trade-offs in the broader risk context is what I'm trying to impress on the folks here. We're honing in on cyber risk because that's what we're going to talk about today, but it is far from the only risk. Jason Crabtree, a former advisor to U.S. Army Cyber Command, says solutions are possible. This is solvable, but a lot of organizations have made a choice not to bring in the experts or the technology or the process maturity that they need to do so. As companies work to beef up cybersecurity even more, Tonzer says the future of food could depend on it. These things are going to keep coming up because we all rely on the internet. And with that, that's another vulnerability. That's why companies keep investing in backup systems and so forth. I'm an optimistic person. I think those investments make us more efficient, let us have a better world, and we shouldn't try to walk away from them. But we need to recognize that we got to manage them. Well, the JBS attack actually happened in a week where CME had expanded the price limits for cattle. We'll talk about that with Arlen Suderman and Matt Bennett next. You're invited to the Continuum Ag Field Day, an event full of all things soil health. Join Rick Clark, Rick Haney, Russell Hedrick, Secretary Mike Nag, and more this Monday, June 7th online or in person in Washington, Iowa. More at continuum.ag events. Matt Bennett, Arlen is Suderman rejoining us. Now, Matt, when I watch wheat prices as of late, I mean, it is a complex market right now, a lot of moving factors, but what is the main driver? You know, I think obviously uh, there's a lot of weather concerns, you know, whether you're talking spring wheat, whether you're talking winter wheat, uh, there's no doubt that there's uh, issues depending on where you're at in the countryside. So uh, for me, I think uh, obviously a lot of talk about uh, switching over to some wheat feeding. I think that demand could actually be uh, positive moving forward as far as towards price projections, but I also think supply uh, could come into question. I'm not so sure uh, that we won't even see a little more abandonment if uh, some of the issues we've had this last weekend as far as freeze was concerned, you know, if those uh, are, are worse than what we thought they were. So be very interesting moving forward. But I think that weather is your main driver at this point. 
Yeah, Arlen, I mean, this week, uh, you know, we heard food prices now near a decade high as we see wheat prices climb and things like that. Inflation definitely re-entering the conversation. What impact could that have on our commodity prices really in the months ahead? Well, commodities are generally seen as a hedge against inflation by the fund managers, but we've already taken the grain and oilseed markets to roughly eight-year highs, so they're thinking, okay, do they have more potential to go higher? So the funds have been slowly moving their money back out of the grain and oilseed sector. Now, that may mean to some, okay, the highs are behind us, or it may mean tremendous additional buying power going forward at some point when we get the signals. For now, what we're seeing is whenever the dollar pushes higher because of thinking interest rates are going higher, that's drawn foreign money, excuse me, foreign investment into our markets, and therefore demand for greenbacks, then the higher dollar creates a little bit of an exit of money out of the commodities because we're less competitive. But longer term, once we get that situation stabilized, uh, and uh, I think it means it's more bullish for the commodities going forward. And I see significant inflation pressures continuing. You mentioned some of the food inflation. If you look at the last four quarters, wage inflation has combined has been the highest in the past four decades, going back to the Paul Volcker era. Uh, I remember those uh, double-digit inflation and interest rate levels very well. Scary to, to think about. And we've been talking about the possible impact inflation could have. Well, let's switch gears, though, to livestock and, and proteins, because really had a square scare with a cyber attack on JBS this week. We talked about that on the show quite a bit at a time when we had expanded price limits in, in cattle. And so when you look at the expanded price limits that we've had on, on, in grains, does that is that any hint of what could come in the, the cattle complex, Matt? Well, you know, there's no doubt we've used the expanded price limits, especially in the way of corn. I mean, uh, last week we saw uh, both up the limit and down the limit in the corn market. This week we uh, have experienced an up the limit move. It's the time that we uh, put this together. Hopefully we don't see the down the limit. But uh, I thought it was very interesting whenever you talk about the JBS situation and that uh, uh, this cyber attack happened whenever we were getting ready to move to expanded limits. So uh, there's no doubt that uh, whoever was behind this, now there's a lot of speculation, but uh, I think they definitely knew exactly what they were doing and when to do it. Yeah, big impact that it could have had. Got it under control pretty quickly. But Arlen, overall, you know, what is the factor that moves these cattle markets right now? Well, the product market is being moved by demand. Unfortunately, that demand doesn't translate all the way to the cattle feeder uh, because of our packing limits, uh, capacity limits that we have and what packers can move through. Uh, we simply cannot move enough cattle through, and the JBS situation just kind of aggravated that, made it worse. And so the job of the marketplace is to reduce the number of cattle that are being fed, and it's doing that. Once we get those numbers lower, we get things into balance, the packer will start paying to what supply and demand determines. But right now, they're simply paying what they choose to pay. And uh, so the board is kind of locked in, and here again, we're at 119, 120 for about the seventh week in a row. Yeah, when you are at the mercy of that, real quick, Matt, I mean, how can you manage risk at this point? Well, it's tough to manage risk, you know, for the cattle producer. I think that one of the biggest things for the for the producer is just uh, what are you going to do about feed costs? I mean, there's no question that, uh, uh, you know, you could see some significant pressures this summer uh, if you don't have your needs booked. And so, uh, you know, the cattle producer, in my opinion, has always been one that's kind of gone out on faith. And I think this year is no different than any other year uh, as far as them 
employing that strategy. But boy, I would sure be careful because I'm afraid you might run a few guys out of business uh, or at least want to step to the sidelines because uh, this is going to be a very volatile situation, especially if the weather is not entirely perfect. Yeah, definitely a concern. Matt, thank you so much. Arlen, thank you so much. Let's take a quick break and then we'll have much more right here on the U.S. Farm Report. It's time to register for Farm Journal Field Days, Hay, Forage, and Cattle Premiums Edition, an interactive online event June 8th and 9th. Go to farmjournalfielddays.com. Farm Journal Field Days, the new American farm show. Well, common interests sparked quite the idea for one pair. Andrew McRae digs up that story this weekend in American Countryside. As Dean Jaden explains, it all began with two guys interested in the same idea in college. Charles Hart and Charles Parr were engineering classmates at the University of Wisconsin. They had a very big passion for developing and building internal combustion engines. The pair formed their Hart Parr company after graduation, building engines in the late 1800s, but they had their sights set on something larger. And they had this vision of, we want to tie an internal combustion engine to a thrashing machine chassis or something like that to eliminate the steam engine. The pair decided to build a foundry in Madison, Wisconsin, but challenges led them to look at other locations. Frustrated, Charles Parr came home to Charles City, Iowa, and found willing investors and the land he needed next to two rail lines. Soon, they had their engines mounted on a frame suitable for farm work. By 1902, they had built what we know as a tractor, but that's not what anyone called it until several years later. They coined the word tractor. Sales manager for Hart Parr in the late teens said, we gotta have a name and, it can, and tractor is traction motor. Within just a few years of the first model, Hart Parr began expanding production in Charles City. In the 1920s, farm implement dealers realized they needed to add to their portfolio, and that resulted in the purchase of Hart Parr by what began as a plow company. You know, these tillage companies, we need, we need a tractor to go along with our tillage tools. So Oliver Chill Plow Company came into the, the act and infused a bunch of cash. The Oliver brand was created when several companies, including Hart Parr, were merged in 1929. The factories in Charles City continued making tractors, but now they bore the name of Oliver. Basically, Charles City was like a miniature Detroit. You know, if you didn't work at Oliver, you didn't work in town. In 1960, the White Motor Company purchased Oliver. The Minneapolis Moline and Cockshut brands were brought under White as well. Soon, there was a new look and color scheme for some of the tractors being made. The new design wasn't appreciated by everyone, though. They made the Minneapolis Moline dealers mad, the Oliver dealers mad, the Minneapolis Moline customers mad, the Oliver customers mad. I want my green paint, I want my yellow paint. They put silver on them. Everybody was mad. So they went from having a total market share of close to 15% to back to about 8%. <laughs> yeah, you know, so. Dean worked for the company beginning in the mid-1970s. He loves to recall the history of the tractors that began here in Charles City and are showcased at the Floyd County Historical Museum. What you see behind me is nearly a century of tractor history. In fact, the very word tractor was coined here. And when you think about it, many of the innovations found on farm fields today all have their roots in this one town. Traveling the countryside in Charles City, Iowa, I'm Andrew McRae. Thanks, Andrew. And you can hear more of Andrew's travels on AmericanCountryside.com. Well, the relationship between the U.S. and China, it's complex. John Phipps talks about it in customer support next. 
It starts with a plan. That's why America's Conservation Ag Movement is inviting you to get your farm business ready for 2021 with a free resource stewardship planning guide. Get your free guide today at agweb.com ACAM. Well, farm exports are on fire and USDA attributing much of that to China. Here's John Phipps. Richard Erickson in Tulsa, Oklahoma, asks a question about China that I suspect will be the first of many such questions. If we are selling agricultural products to the Chinese, and these products are produced with subsidies from the federal government, are we indirectly subsidizing a country that might become our enemy in a future war? Would our large-scale sale of food to China be possible? without American agricultural subsidies? We might not completely know the answer to this question today, but I think it is something we must watch without being overconfident or complacent. Great lead-in question, please send me your address. I will be addressing many aspects of China's new position in geopolitics in upcoming shows. Are we essentially subsidizing Chinese ag purchases? Eh, maybe, but the nature of our subsidies in the last two years really had less economic effect on Chinese purchase prices and much more effect on landowner and farmer income. Government payments almost always end up largely in the landowner pockets or equity. Keep an eye on future farmland prices. China would likely have bought a similar amount of grain whether I got MFPs, CFAPs, and BPPs or not. Demand from China was its own price booster, along with crop problems elsewhere. Nor would our acreage of such crops have varied much either, I doubt. It's just the stuff we grow with few viable substitutes. Instead, input prices took off, machinery sold out, and land auctions are standing room only. What is changed is our belated realization that China really is going to be the world's largest economy soon, and that their manufacturing, scientific research, and increasing authoritarianism require a sober understanding of what this means to us and the world. They have big problems as well, like the fastest aging and probably decreasing population that present serious obstacles to what I think are President Xi's ambitions for his country and his own legacy. What we have not come to grips with here is the simple question, what are you going to do about it? Responses to that question require something other than ideas left over from the USSR and the Cold War of my youth. Thanks, John. And if you want to get a hold of John, you can email him. That's mailbag at usfarmreport.com. Well, farmers in the northern Corn Belt right now, they're seeing record heat. That comes on the heels of record cold. And it's having an impact that's showing up in the fields. That's from the farm next. Well, from record cold last week to now record heat, Farmers in the northern Corn Belt are definitely seeing weather extremes, and it's having an impact on crops already planted in the fields. USDA's meteorologist Brad Rippey says the freeze in places like Iowa last week, it marks the third latest freeze on record, only behind the years of 1897 and 1947. 
In April, Hemis farms in Hampton, Iowa. She told me the fallout showed up in fields already earlier this week. Temperatures hit 32 degrees over the weekend in her area. And check this out killed nearly all of her planted soybeans. She shared these pictures, and as you can see, soybeans, those were hurt the worst, and not just any soybeans, but only soybeans planted in no-till. I have a 450-acre field all around my house, and um, all but 70 acres of it was no-till soybeans. So um, pretty much all of it, except for my endros look good, or anywhere there wasn't a lot of trash, but what do you do, you know? Do you go, put your planter down, pick it up, put it down, pick it up, or you just replant the whole field. So I think I'm just going to go out there and I put my 15 inch row planter on and I'm just going to hit it hard. Hemis says she's already secured soybeans to replant. She says her corn crop was dinged in the freeze last week. And as she continues to assess that crop, it possibly could have to be replanted as well. We saw several of those photos this week, just some ugly looking fields from that late freeze. All right, that does it this weekend for U.S. Farm Report. And speaking of Iowa, next week we're on the road, a live taping of U.S. Farm Report from the World Pork Expo in Des Moines, Iowa. So if you're in the area, please join us for our live taping as we dive right back into a discussion about pork next week from World Pork Expo. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast.